Good evening, everybody. Nice to see you. So we'll, we'll give just another moment for folks to jump in. And I, uh, I did put the Zoom uh, handout, the Zoom study handout in the chat feature. So if you click on the bottom where it says chat, you can click on that if you need the handout. If, uh, if you've already printed it out, then you're all set to go. Make sure you grab a Bible because um, we'll be looking around in, in the scriptures, of course. I put my email address there. If you have a, a question or comment later, um, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, it's nice to see everybody. Advent is going to fly by. And, you know, it's such, like I was saying before, when I was talking to Ted, it, I love Advent. It's such a beautiful season, uh, you know, preparatory season, but so beautiful. And uh, it's short. And uh, that's one of the interesting things about it. You know, sometimes you uh, you wish that, that it was a little longer, but uh, you're speeding on to the nativity of the Lord, you know, after... Uh, after the people of the of the scriptures of the Old Testament waited for so long, uh, now Advent is short in retrospect. So, um, at that, let's go ahead and open with the uh, the collect for the first Sunday in Advent. Let us pray. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Stir up your power, O Lord, and come, that by your protection we may be rescued from the threatening perils of our sins and saved by your mighty deliverance. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, so uh, if you haven't already done so, make sure you grab a Bible and uh, open up. We're going to take a look at uh, Blind Bartimaeus tonight, uh, which is... In the handout, it is Mark chapter 10. It is uh, verses 46 to 52. And we're going we're gonna to jump around a little bit tonight because the, uh, the account of, of the healing of blind Bartimaeus itself is, is rather short. And, um, but it is rich in uh, Old Testament imagery. So we're going to take a look at some of that. Uh, tonight as we also take a look at the the actual narrative itself so as we uh as we look at this then we're thinking the theme for tonight is stability and um stability is is one of those scriptural themes uh you see it in early christendom um you see it in the rule of St. Benedict when, when he writes his rule. Um, it's, you can see it in there in different places. And stability is to have a foundation. And in our culture today, as we know, and as we've discussed, postmodernism uh, lacks truth. It, uh, it basically destroys the notion of an absolute truth. And so everything is always changing. Well, what's interesting, and I, I ran across this, I've been reading, and I don't know if anybody else has has read this book yet, but um, 
the Benedict Option uh, by Rod Dreyer, or Dreyer uh, rather. And um, he talks a little bit about the cultural dynamics that that are at work today in the Western modern world. And he has a quote uh, from a, a sociologist or anthropologist, one of the two, I'm not sure which, his name's Zygmunt Bauman. And he says, Zygmunt Bauman says that liquid modernity compels us to refuse stability because it is a fool's game. The hub of postmodern life strategy is not identity building, but avoidance of fixation, he writes. And so what's interesting with uh, this Zygmunt Bauman fella is he says he's not so sure about the notion of postmodernism, but he looks a little more in terms of liquid modernity. So modernism that's fluid. And there's this really interesting quote that I put on page one at the bottom or uh, right below the one I read. Zygmunt Bauman writes, as time flows on, modernity changes its forms in the manner of the legendary Proteus, what was some time ago dubbed erroneously post-modernity. And what I have chosen to call more to the point liquid modernity is the growing conviction that change is the only permanence and uncertainty the only certainty. A hundred years ago, to be modern meant to chase the final state of perfection. Now it means an infinity of improvement with no final state in sight and none desired. And that is a that is an interesting quote to me because I've always uh, given a lot of thought to post-modernity. But this idea of liquid modernity is is also striking. So our course here is the art of witness. And so the art of witness is aware of this dynamic, the lack of foundation. And the people that are outside of the church are always living in this liquid modernity or this post-modernity where things are always changing. And I mean, just thinking about these things a little bit, I mean, I can relate to this even myself a little bit that, you know, since Stacy and I've been married, um, we've moved a little bit, you know, we moved for seminary years, we left our hometown. um, And and I've had a, a few calls and um and that often happens in the ministry but um not just ministry i mean for many of you who are business professionals you don't live in your hometown you have moved for work and you've left family and i don't know if you've ever heard of um the venerable bead the venerable bead was a church father in the middle ages he was um, a Benedictine, I believe, and he wrote a history of the church, and it's really good. But one of the interesting things about, and he also wrote a commentary on the book of Acts. And in the um, introduction to the, the book, his commentary on the book of Acts, he talks about his life. And, you know, monasticism was big in those days. And 
he talks about how he went into this Benedictine monastery at a very early age, and he spent his whole life there. And I believe, as I recall, there there's reflection that he gives on this, and he talks about the ups and downs of always living in the same place and never never moving, but he saw it as a blessing. And one of the things about that is there's always, a, earthly speaking, a foundation. In our culture today, people move around. I mean, we are transitory as people in, in, in America, and that has an effect on people, on their psyche and, and you know, um, friendships and relationships and, and those kinds of things. But then if you also add the notion of truth or the fact that truth is just relative and there is no absolute truth, then that also begins to erode a foundation and the rootedness of life. And so when we think about the art of witness, it's good to be mindful of the fact that most people do not have a foundation and they may think they do. And they may say, well, my job is, is my foundation or my family is my foundation and my home is where I live. And that's, that's where I, I find contentment. But if any of those things change, then life gets thrown upside down. It could, you know, with um, the rise in divorces in our, you know, in our culture, that has an effect. Um, and so you think about rootedness and the idea of the altar, having an altar where you go uh, every Sunday and you receive the Eucharist, uh, where you hear God's word and you have a pastor or pastors, uh, this, and you hear the gospel and the love of Jesus, that becomes a rooted a rooted kind of thing, and it it gives us uh, gravitas. And people that don't have that then are also missing the spiritual component uh, as well. And so when we think about all of these things, how do we how do we respond to the people outside of the church? How do we bring protreptics in? And, you know, how, how do we talk to people who they believe they have a rooted life? Um, they believe they have foundations that are unshakable. Um, but yet there's something, there's a deep hole, perhaps, in one's soul. And so how do we, how do we begin to address it? Well, it's very important that we look at the person as a person, you know, as an individual, we look into their face. And uh, as I've said so many times, we listen. Well, in this gospel, what we're going to see tonight is someone who is not rooted. Uh, he doesn't have a foundation, which uh, becomes evident in the text. And then uh, when he cries out for uh, the true foundation, Jesus, he's ridiculed and um, 
there's an attempt to silence him. So let's take a look at this. Uh, so if you would, if you haven't done this already, open up to open up in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Verses 46 to 52. And uh, Mark's gospel itself is just such a such a wonderful gospel. It, in some ways, it seems uh, it's shorter and it seems simple, but uh, it's really, really rich. So um, the healing of blind Bartimaeus. So who are the players in this narrative? Well, you have Jesus, of course. You have the disciples. And then you have Bartimaeus, and then you have a large crowd. And there are a few central themes that are at work in, in this text, in this narrative, that are found in abundance in the Old Testament. So you have the theme of light and darkness. There is silence and proclamation. And then you have this language of being on the road or off the road. And in this text, all of these things sort of come together and they go from one to the other. You start off with darkness, you start off with silence, you start off off the road, and then it all shifts. And Psalm 1, which I had printed. Uh, put in the bulletin on the bottom of page two sets off the Hebrew notion of, of two roads or two ways. And uh, I wonder if any of you have, have ever found a, a great love for Psalm one. Uh, I love the first Psalm. It's short, but it's beautiful. And the, the language in the, in the Greek, which would be the Septuagint, uh, the word usage is really striking. And it starts off, let's just take a look at it. If you look at the handout, it's in red near the bottom of page two. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he profits. He prospers. So notice how I separated those first three verses off, because those first three verses lay out one road or one way in Hebrew, because the Hebrew for road and way is, is halakha. And this is a very spiritual thing. It, you know, you have this language of road and feet and path and light for the path and so on. But then verses four and five stand alone because they depict the other road. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So the first section deals with the road of the righteous. The second section deals with the road of the wicked. And then verse six, the, the final verse of the first psalm, sums up the two ways or the two roads for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And what's interesting about this is this is how the Psalms begin. So what the psalmists are doing is laying out 
for the book of Psalms that there are two roads in life, the way of the righteous, the way of wickedness. And of course, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We could say that's Jesus. And so ultimately, we're getting this theme and this pattern right off the bat. So then um, let's take a look at the text itself, the, the healing of blind Bartimaeus, because as this story goes, they are coming out of Jer they, they come from Jericho, and then they're leaving Jericho, Jesus and his disciples. And of course, there's this great crowd that's following. And they're following because they've some have listened to his teaching. Some have seen his miracles and the miracles always seem to grab a lot of attention. And so they were following and Jericho was kind of on the way. You had to pass through Jericho to get to Jerusalem if you're coming from that direction. So that's what they're doing. So Jesus is making his way in to die. And the way Mark lays it out in terms of structure he puts the healing of blind Bartimaeus right before the Palm Sunday narrative, the writing in and the palm branches and the hosannas and that. And John does it completely differently. John, John has the raising of Lazarus and, and all of that unfolding. And then he, he, he comes in. So, but the idea is something big happens in both accounts which precedes Jesus coming in. But the Greek in this text is beautiful in this gospel. And so they're coming out of Jericho to go into Jerusalem. You've got a big crowd. And then you have, as it says in the text, the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus just means son of Timaeus. But Timaeus actually comes from the word for honor or honorable. And so the idea here is that Bartimaeus, his father, was an honorable man. But that's his father, not Bartimaeus. And he has blindness. And so often in that culture, Blindness was seen as an impediment, um, something that he has done or perhaps one of his family members has done. And so the often the notion was that this person deserved what they had coming to them. So there is in this narrative a lack of mercy and a lack of love and, and a lack of, of needing to help feeling the need to help. There's also a theme which we see more and more in the American culture, which is uh, honor shame. You've probably heard this before that, you know, especially among the young, the younger generations tend to be honor shame generations. And so shame is, is a real thing. It's, and it's difficult. And, um, and you see this in this text. So, Blind Bartimaeus would have been one of those people that would have been left alone and placed off to the side 
and maybe he'll get a coin or two throughout the day. And so that's what they do. They place him off the side of the road. Now, what's interesting is if you look at if you look at it in the English in your Bible, it will say something depending on which uh, which translation you have. It'll say something about Bartimaeus sitting by the roadside, but in the Greek, it says that he's been placed off the road. He's along the side of the road, but he's not on the road. So if you think back to Psalm 1, there's two roads of life, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The goal for the Hebrew people was to be on the road of righteousness, to be on it. And so in this gospel, Bartimaeus is off the road. He's he's to the side of it, and he's placed there. He's blind. He hopes for something, and there he sits. And location is is very important in this text. And then what happens in the next verse is he begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Have mercy. And what happens then is the crowd begins to jeer at him and tell him to be silent. And the reason for the call for silence, which we could draw the conclusion, is that they don't want Jesus to be vocal in his life. Um, Or perhaps they feel like he would disrupt the Holy One, Jesus. And so you have kind of an honor shame thing going on right away. What's remarkable about the Greek text is the rebuke is the Greek word epitimon. So if you look at verse 48, if you, and then if you look at the handout, it's important to see, I put the Greek here so you can see the connection. Verse 48, the crowd yells and rebukes the blind man to be silent. Mark uses a special word for rebuke, and the the Greek word is epitimon. So Timaeus, right? And then epitimon sounds similar, right? Epitimon, the word for rebuke, is saying to blind Bartimaeus, be silent because you're dishonorable. You have no right to speak. And I I have used this text as well when I talk to people outside the church and we sit down and we kind of get, you know, as I've said, postmoderns love narratives. So you get in and you you tell this, this narrative and you start pulling out these kinds of nuggets and you can help them relate to it. Like, have you ever felt in the world that even though you are supposed to be accepted, uh, you're not accepted? Uh, the very people that that you thought were your people, you know, um, the people, uh, say, for example, um, you have a certain ideology or philosophy of life. 
uh, a certain way that you want to live. And you see people uh, just like that. And so those are the people you end up hanging out with, spending your time with and doing things with. And, you know, have they always accepted you? Um, or have they not? And and when have they not accepted you? Have, or have you ever not felt accepted? And nine times out of 10, the person will perk up and say, yeah, you know, um, I thought I would fit in uh, with the crowd and um, they embarrassed me or uh, they didn't, they never accepted me as one of their own. I always felt like I was on the outside or um, I wasn't good enough to, uh, to be with them. And so the sense of honor, shame, the sense of not belonging uh, leads into a lack of stability and, and not having um, a foundation and a people with whom you have a likeness. And so it's an opportunity at this point to say, you know, you're not alone because, um, you know, you have Jesus who, who invites you in and he grafts you in, right? We know all the language that Paul uses about the body of Christ and how individually we are many members, but we are together one, the body of Christ. And so you have Jesus as the head and then the church is the body and there's foundation. And where does it find its place? But at the altar and at the baptismal font and in your baptism, uh, you are brought into the church and a holy family uh, with a rich history, with um, a myriad of saints and angels. And so, yeah, I mean, you could just, you can see how you could just go with this and, um, and it can become a very powerful thing. And so, so what's interesting here is the word that's chosen for rebuke shames Bartimaeus even beyond um, where he's been shamed already, but it doesn't stop him. He continues and he says it all the more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then what happens is, uh, let's see here. In verse 49, he's, Jesus stops. So, you know, if you think about location, Jesus is walking on the road. So he is the author of life. He is, as Psalm 1 says, the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but walks in the way of the righteous. And so here he comes on the road, disciples following. Bartimaeus is off the road, but he's the one crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's, he's using Old Testament language. Jesus stops and says, call him. And so then the people stop and say, get up, he calls you. And, you know, I just love the Greek. I, I hope you guys don't mind it, but I just, I kind of geek out on this stuff because the, the language is so so striking and so beautiful. And in verse 49, uh, he says, um, be courageous, raise, rise up, he hears you. And 
this is language, uh, the rise up is language of resurrection, for one thing. And then for another, uh, this, this take courage or be courageous kind of thing comes up. Uh, Jesus, he says, uh, be courageous for I've overcome the world in John 16, 33. And then in Mark 6, verse 50, when Jesus is walking on the water, he says, it is I. Take courage, do not be afraid. And I mean, this take courage language is in the Gospels of a divine quality. And if you would, please take a look at page five. Because at the top of the page, you can see I've got some of this courage language. And Word word usage and word order is so important. So, like, I put it in the Greek and then the English. Uh, his the Mark six fifty passage where he says, "It is I take courage; do not be afraid." He has um, in Greek, "Take courage," and then "It is I or I ego I me; do not be afraid." And what what Mark has done here, or what Jesus has done, is he puts ego I me, I am, that's the divine name. And he puts it in between take courage and do not be afraid. And so what Mark 650 is suggesting is courage and not being fearful is to be encased or to have have the, have the divine name encased right in the middle of it all or for the church god himself his divine name and and all that he is is right in the middle of of our very existence which creates courage and the ability to not be afraid and you know some people would think um Oh, you're talking to somebody who's um, has no church background. Don't get into the Greek. That'll just confuse them and throw them off. But that actually has not been the case for me. Like when I talk about this stuff with people outside the church, they're amazed by it. And what it does is it heightens the beauty of the scriptures and the depth of the scriptures. So anyway, um, I know most of you don't know Greek, but I mean, this is just great stuff. It's great stuff to share. So as we continue on, then uh, the blind man throws off his garment, his outer garment, and he comes to Jesus. So location. So there's this notion of movement. So he goes from off the road and he comes to Jesus, which is Jesus is right on the road. And then Jesus asks the very interesting question. What do you desire that I do for you? And desire is of the heart. So Jesus is not asking questions of the head or simply the intellect. He is actually getting at the depth of the soul. What do you desire? And this is where the art of wit, this can be helpful with the art of witness, even if you don't know Greek, you know, it's, you can you can talk to a person and get them 
if, if you're, if you're having a, a friendship with them and they get to know you and you get to know them and they begin to open up to you more and more, they will start to tell you what they desire, what's deep in the heart, what is, what is deeply embedded in the soul. And this is when oftentimes uh, pain will come up, will come out. Um, the notion of shame or the feeling of shame that a person has experienced in his or her life may come out. Um, the way they've been treated or maybe the world has failed them in some way. And I mean, you can see it, right? I mean, this is spiritual care. I mean, this is when the things of Jesus really start to take to take place uh, in the life of a person. And what does blind Bartimaeus say? What, what is the desire of his heart? Um, well, he wants to see, and he doesn't want to see just any old thing. It's, it's not that he just wants to be able to see his food when he eats, but the word that is used in Greek is anablepo, he wants to see the prefix ana is an upward thing. So he wants to see heavenly things. He wants to see divine things. He wants to see Jesus. And then we see it because then Jesus makes the remark, go, your faith has saved you. And this is the beauty of the gospel the verb has saved you is in the perfect tense. So it's a completed action. So it's not like Jesus isn't saying, well, Bartimaeus, you know, you got to go straighten yourself out. And, um, you know, you got to go fix these things first. And, hey, then, then you can, you've got a little bit, and then you come back and you'll get a little more. No, he, Jesus says your faith has saved you it's done it's gift and it's complete and so then what how does the narrative end the narrative ends with the blind man healed and seeing seeing things up above and he begins and the language in the greek is striking he begins to journey on the road and i think i put it did I put that on here? No, I didn't. But anyway, I mean, it's striking that the notion of going from the side of the road to now getting his sight back, and now he journeys on the road. And so, you know, all of this takes you back to Psalm 1, for example, and he is now walking on the way of the righteous with the man, Jesus himself. And he's got a new life. And this is, this gets to something uh, deep in terms of our care for other people, like the notion of mercy. Um, in, in, our, in our modern context, I would say as a culture, people tend to get caught up in ideologies 
and ideologies then categorize. And so what, what people tend to do is you'll, uh, we'll see somebody and we'll take a look at the way they talk. We'll take a look at their appearance. Um, if we gather some information that we know about them and how they live, then what do we do? But we categorize them and we put them into an ideology. And then we tend to deal with those people depending on what ideology or what camp we put them in. And that is a very difficult thing in terms of the art of witness because scripturally in the Old Testament, there's a lot of language about looking into the face of someone. Like, like for example, if you, if you wanted to, you could take a look in your Bible and go to the beginning of Genesis to Adam and Eve. Ah, so this would be in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, and here's how it reads. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so this is where then the Lord provides Eve for Adam. But what's interesting in the Hebrew is uh, the phrase helper fit for him or helpmate was kind of the old language. The Hebrew word is neged. And what it literally means is comparable or even more to the point, what it means is from before the eyes. So the, the picture is this. There's poor Adam, right? Poor, lonely Adam. He's sitting there all alone and God sees him and says, that poor guy, he, he doesn't have, he doesn't have a, a good wife, you know? And so he gives him Eve, but he brings Eve and presents her to Adam. And what happens? But this whole notion of helper fit it from before the eyes is Adam and Eve are presented together. Adam looks into the face of Eve and he is now complete. Eve looks into the face of Adam and now she's complete. And so hence the, the term comparable, um, they find themselves in the other. And so that's marriage. That's holy marriage. That's one thing. But if you look throughout the Old Testament, there's other language of the Lord shining into our lives or our faces beholding God. It's the same kind of concept in a way of looking into one another and finding who you are. And so the idea in the Old Testament Hebrew is that when God's face shines into our lives or we behold God's face, we find stability and we find meaning and we find depth. And so that's, that's the divine thing between God and humanity. But now think about the art of witness then. When we look to our neighbor, so, so God shines his face into our lives, 
and blesses us and loves us. And then we go out into the world to love our neighbor. If we're only looking at the world from the perspective of ideologies and camps, and we just categorize people, we never actually look into their faces to see a human being. And so the idea is we have to try as best we can cast off those ideologies and look at the person as a person, as a human being with a soul, someone who wants to be loved and who wants to love. And then you've got something to work with. And, and I, you know, I, I see this more and more like as my boys have, have gotten older, you know, I look at, I look at other people out in the world now that my boys are pretty much adults and, and I see other people and I think, you know, those are somebody else's children and those children are very important to those people. And, um, you know, so they should be important to us too. And um, so, so then you, what, what is, what is really striking to me then is for one thing, you can jot this down and look at it later. Second Corinthians four, six, for the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's important, especially that notion of face or person. Okay. But then take a quick look in your Bible at Philippians. Let's see here. Go to Philippians chapter two, I believe. Yep. Go to Philippians chapter two and look at how Paul encourages the church. And I, I can't remember, I might have mentioned this early on in one of our other um, Art of Witness sessions. And I see I'm out of t- about out of time, so I'm going to have to speed up and, and wrap up. But if you look at Philippians 2 verse 1, it, it goes, and I'm kind of translating out of, the, out of the Greek here, so your English might read just slightly different. If there is any... Uh, consolation in Christ, if there is any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any compassion and mercy, fulfill my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, um, life, those who are alive together. Um, And these so what's interesting about this as paul does this i am convinced that like when paul for example is writing his epistles he's not just writing out of the air but he is thinking about jesus and what jesus taught him he is thinking about the the stories and the accounts of Jesus and what he does here in Philippians chapter two, verse one is he uses words for the church 
that had been used for God himself, either Christ or the Heavenly Father. So like this first one, if there's any consolation in Christ, the word consolation in Greek is paraklesis. And if you've ever heard of the, the phrase holy paraclete for the Holy Spirit, that's where that word comes from. So that constellation in Christ is Holy Spirit-driven language. And then he uses paramythian agapes. And that word too, uh, paramythian, is used in other places. And this word is a means of comfort. So it means to these people, the comfort of love would have meant to them to be as physically close to someone who is suffering as is as is possible. So you literally sit with the person and you look into their face and you see a human being and you see a human being who needs love, who um, needs or yearns for a foundation, who wants to belong, who wants mercy. And, and you stay with them. And then fellowship of the spirit, that fellowship is used for the church's Eucharistic fellowship. Uh, and then compassion, is, the Greek word is splachna. And that word is used by Jesus when he looks at the people at the feeding of the 5,000. And it says he sees, he has compassion on them because he sees them as sheep not having a shepherd. And so that compassion is like his insides hurt. He sees them and his insides hurt. And then this other one, this mercy and at the end of verse one is actually used in Luke 636 for the heavenly father. Be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. So look at what a beautiful heritage we have. Look at what beautiful scriptures we have. Look at how it's ordered. And it has everything to do with the art of witness because we go, walk past the baptismal font where we were baptized. We make our way up to the Eucharist where Jesus' face shines in our lives and we're loved. And we have stability. And then we are led out. And we find our brothers and sisters in Christ out there in the commons. And then we go outside the doors. And we look around in our neighborhoods. And we see people who need the same love that Jesus just loved us with. And the art of witness is to come to people just like Jesus did there. And when all the world forsakes them, we bring them in and we show them Jesus. We teach them his teaching. We bring his mercy and his love. And then the confession of faith that goes along with it. So uh, I have so much scripture. Um, you can jot down Isaiah 50, verse 10. I just didn't get a chance to go through it all, but there's Isaiah 50, verse 10. Take a look at that. And 
Psalm 4, verse 6. And, oh, there's so much. Maybe I'll try to get into some of this other stuff next week as, as we continue on. But um ask you or make a quick comment and get your feedback if you have a second. Absolutely. So it struck me that uh, Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road in shame and the shame honor culture that he was in um, has to take heart or find courage. And I just, um, I know that's, one of the cardinal virtues in in the Christian life is so that's something that we're always supposed to be kind of uh, fostering and and developing in ourselves. And I was just struck by by that and and how um, wondering, you know, I'm I'm imagining we we need that uh, as we walk through the Christian life uh, that we always are going to be running up against things that might uh, bring us shame and. Um, Christ builds that courage uh, in us, and it's that fortitude um, that that kind of uh, draws us to him and helps us stand up straight and to see. That's so true. Yeah, that's that's so true. I mean, think of it as a cardinal virtue of Christianity, and and you think about the rich history of the church and how that was a very real thing for uh of course the early christians because i mean look at the uh you know all of the original uh the first disciples um all of them were martyred except for john the evangelist um and of course except for uh judas but i mean the rest of them had been martyred so courage was you know that language was was real and 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 tangible and and then of course you see um the church then that, that develops and follows and um the importance of confessing the faith uh to rulers and leaders who were against it um and um and the martyrs that died mm-hmm. i mean that stuff courage was very re- you know that's a very real thing to to grapple with wasn't it so thank you. That's good. Really good thought. Thank you very much. Yeah. Blessings. I think it's time to end right there. So um, thanks for joining me tonight. It's always a joy to, to do this and to be with you. And thanks for coming to be with me. Uh, brings joy to my life. So let us together pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a blessed evening.